Welcome to Belonging and Becoming. Each month, as part of this podcast, we'll share an interview with an Asbury graduate whose life reminds us of the incredible ways God is at work. Today, we welcome Andrew Coleman, a business major from the class of 98. Andrew is Senior Vice President and General Manager of GE Aviation Digital. He's also a member of Asbury's Board of Trustees. He was interviewed via Zoom by Asbury University President, Dr. Kevin Brown. Andrew, let me extend my welcome. So excited to, to talk with you today. And I was wondering if we could just begin, would you be willing to just provide a, a synopsis or a snapshot of yourself? What are, what are some of the salient things you would want people to know about you? Sure. Thanks, Kevin. And again, really appreciate you having me on. Top of mind things that pop out. I uh, am actually only 11 years old, even though I graduated in 1998. <laughs> and that's because my birthday is February 29th. So I'm fortunate enough to get a birthday once every four years, uh, this year being one of those birthdays. I uh, am the husband of Angie Sheely Coleman. Mm-hmm. She and I met at a Bible study after Asbury. I was not in that fortunate group to meet their spouse at Asbury. And honestly, for about a decade, wondered if God, did I miss the mark? Did I not listen when I was there? But he had a perfect plan and timing. And I met Angie at a Bible study. Uh, We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary, renewed our vows actually at Pebble Beach, California, where we got married. And we have two boys, John, uh, we call him Jack, and Charlie. Jack is seven, and Charlie is four. We live in Austin, Texas which is uh, just, if you know anything about Texas, there's Texas and there's Austin, and there's two very, <laughs> very different things there. Uh, we moved here, as I said, four years ago from Pebble Beach, California, where we spent eight years, but we're originally from Ohio. Uh, I'm from Dayton, Ohio, and my wife Angie is from Tyro, Ohio, just outside of Mansfield. Fantastic. Now, you, you transferred to Asbury your sophomore year, my understanding, looking for a, a less impersonal experience can you talk about that, and, and what did you get at Asbury that was different? I uh, was the product of Christian schools from second grade to 12th grade. I went to Dayton Christian for high school. loved it, but there was a piece, I think it was ego-driven, probably more than anything of me, that said, I think I'm pretty good at baseball. And this was before the internet and a lot of ways to find people digitally. I got a fair amount of letters in high school from different colleges and mm-hmm. and teams. And so my dream was maybe my vocation and calling would be playing for baseball. And so while I considered Asbury, I honestly ended up going to Miami of Ohio, a division one school where there was a track record of people going there and, and achieving professional baseball, but also a good school. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not being facetious at all. The first practice I realized that was about a tenth as good as I thought it was. Hmm, hmm. I looked around and I saw the talent around me. And yet in that same season, what I also felt, which was very different from Dayton Christian, was while Miami isn't a bad school, I felt like a number. Yeah, I'd go to class. There was oftentimes not a teacher. It was a teacher's assistant teaching the course. Even in the dorms, it was almost like, I'd say, a factory where Miami was pretty obsessed with, are you going to graduate and get a good job and look good in our demographic data? But not, are you going to graduate as a man of integrity with a heart for bigger purpose than just a paycheck and, and good statistics? Yes. And so probably around Christmas time, really wrestled with it throughout the semester. Is it something that you quit and walk away from or do you power through it? 
And around Christmas time, I just really felt the Spirit's leading. It's time to be open to maybe going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget coming in March to see Asbury. And while I didn't pull on campus and see the Red Sea part, I almost felt like it did in many ways. Dr. Gray was there waiting to spend the better part of the day with me. Hmm. And as I got to spend more time in the business department, as well as meeting with the baseball coach and seeing the baseball facilities, it all came together. And I just, without a shadow of a doubt, knew that's where I needed to be. And so I did make a very indirect route to Asbury. But wow, am I glad I made it there. Yeah. Yeah, I I played uh, basketball at the University of Indianapolis. And I, I, very similar to what you just described, I quickly realized every player on this team was the best in the environment they came from. Mm. And so the, the idea that you would step into a new environment and uh, maintain that same identity, uh, I quickly realized was, was naive. And uh, I also had a very similar uh, identity crisis in some ways. Um, I stayed at that school. I'm glad I did. Um, there, there were some really good people and influences and major changes in my life. Um, but I, I resonate with your, your story very much. And was, was there a particular moment you mentioned at Christmas where it was, this is not going to cut it, or was it something more gradual where you were open to the possibility of something different or maybe even God doing something different in your life? Normally in life, it is gradual. In this case, it definitely was. Although I will be direct when I set foot on campus in March, it was like, this is, it was immediate. Yes. And mm-hmm. I've had a handful of those moments too. But in that one, it was a process. Mm-hmm. And if I had to credit it to probably one thing, I would say she's since passed my grandmother. When I was a junior or senior in high school, really started praying about where I would go to college and started really bugging me about going to Asbury, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. She hadn't gone there or anything. <laughs> she just knew a lot about the school, the revival, Dr. Geyerson, and all of that just was in her prayers. I think the Holy Spirit needed a little more time to work on me. So it was a gradual process. Mm. You've talked before about a chapel at Asbury that changed your trajectory as a person of faith and your life in general. And can you can you talk more about that chapel? I don't remember the date, but I remember as clear as I'm speaking right now, just during the altar call, not even going up, but just silently praying and hearing as clear as I'm speaking— are you going to be Jonah or are you going to be Joseph? And for the most part of my life, I wasn't a rebel or a bad kid or, or, you know, doing the things that you would say, oh my gosh, you are straight on a path to hell or anything like that. But I hadn't given Christ my all. And I just vividly remember the Holy Spirit saying, if you're not going to give me all you've got, like Joseph did, good times, bad times, frankly, don't bother. And at that moment, and this is probably just my type A wiring and maybe my business wiring, I said, God, I'm going to run you through a proof of concept for the next 90 days. You get it all. Not Sunday, not during chapel, not during this class. Everything I do, you are my purpose. You're my mission statement. Hmm. And in that 90 days, oh my gosh, did the Holy Spirit become real in so many ways that I hadn't even thought of before. And I would tell you to this day, I'm still in that 90-day season. And not to imply that life's been perfect or easy. But that decision I I look to is the most important decision I've ever made in my life, and there's just been no looking back. Yes. Yeah, we we talk about uh, the same thing, these these gradual moments, uh, but also the the moments of challenge. We've just gone through an exercise uh, this last summer that was really exciting to to really articulate a chapel philosophy. And Mm -hmm. we've had a chapel philosophy, but something that it's on paper that we can map our chapels back to that provide a framework for our, our guests and visitors. 
And one of the things we said, we want chapel to inspire our students, but we also want chapel to challenge our students. And similar to the story you're providing, that was born out of, I want to be inspired. But when I think of the services, whether in church or revivals that have moved the needle in my life from a spiritual standpoint, I was challenged. It was that heart thumping, mm-hmm. your uh, palms are, are sweaty kind of, <laughs> is, is the Lord speaking to me right now? And it sounds like you had a similar experience. Yeah, you know at that moment, there's going to be no turning back. Either this day I'm going to move in one direction or the other, but this is not just a typical day. Yes. And, and those are rare, to your point, and the Holy Spirit, I really do believe, leads us up to them and prepares us for them. Mm-hmm. But at that moment, I just felt like it was, you know, what decision are you going to make? And that decision is going to guide you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Even though I did time box it to 90 days, I know it was silly. By the time I just said, all right, I'll give you 90 days to see what will happen. And I, I, I like the proof of concept uh, uh, <laughs> notion uh, that that's a business student uh, wrestling with uh, some some uh, theological truths. Uh, uh, I, I like it. And I just didn't want to be phony about it. Sure. So I really no, in my absolutely. heart said, if this isn't real, I'm chucking it. Yeah. And I didn't like that outcome because it just leads you down a dark path. I said, Lord, I really hope this is real. But if it's not, I'm not going to just do it in part of my life. Yes. Now, I had the benefit this last spring of hearing you speak at the Dayton School of Business banquet, albeit it was on Zoom, but it was still tremendous. In your talk, you, you talked about the importance of being uh, a wingman, having a wingman, being a wingman. Uh, you've put it uh, as the value of being number two. W- would you be willing to highlight some of those points with our listeners? I'd love to. Thanks for asking. When I was seven, I was in Sunday school. And I'll never forget this moment. Uh, there was a kid in our class that people were frankly making fun of and just laughing at. And it really bothered me to the core. To the core is like, I don't know what's different about Walter, but I know I don't like how he's being treated. And to this day, Walter is my best friend. He lives in Belmont, right outside of Dayton. And we still talk on the phone every weekend. When I was living in Ohio, every Friday we would get together. Walter's got Down syndrome. And so that moment forward, I just feel like so much of why we're here on life, frankly, the main reason we're here on life is not about us. Mm. If we're willing to let go of that to either stand in front for someone or stand behind someone and and to your your point with the aviation analogy, help them complete their mission. And so from that moment forward and through a fair amount of research, honestly, talking to backup quarterbacks in the NFL, vice presidents of the United States, vice presidents and companies, nurses in the ER, substitute teachers – People that are asked to play a role supporting someone else, what you discover is a few things. The first is all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, have to be a wingman, a support to somebody else. Even if you're the chairman and CEO of General Electric, Mm -hmm. you're still supporting a board and supporting customers. And so I find today in this season of social media and look at me, look at me, look at me, if you're willing to swim kind of countercultural, A, you stand out, but the amount of impact you can have in people's lives and just frankly, the amount of joy you get fulfilling the mission Christ put you on earth for, Wingman has just been, to my point, a big part of my life. And then for the last four years to work in the aviation industry, I feel like Mm -hmm. in many ways, God was getting me ready for this season through all those other events. I've been talking about Wingman well before I worked at GE. Mm -hmm. And then when I landed here, I was like, wow, Lord, what a great time. And to be able to take this to the next level. And if you talk to even our CEO here at GE, we're in a deep, deep transformation. And you'll hear a lot about lean 
and Six Sigma, but you're starting to hear more and more, what's this wingman thing you're talking about? Is hmm. it just a buzzword or is there a system underneath? How does it work? Yes. And so to have that happen, as you can imagine, it's just like, thank you, Lord. Yes. This is where I'm supposed to be right now and not for my glory, for your glory. Yes, yes. When I'm listening to you, what I hear you describing is love. Uh, when, when I talk to our students here about relationships, whether those are romantic or friendship, I love to offer this quote by a uh, theologian, Joseph Pieper. He says, to love someone is not to desire them. It is to desire something for them. Uh, and this is Aquinas' idea of love, to will the good of another. And that's what I'm hearing you say. Whereas I, I think uh, a more maybe cultural notion of love is someone makes me feel good about myself, or it's kind of a form of self-love. But your description of Walter, just uh, the, the value of being number two, the value of being supportive, the value of willing the good of another, this really is a classical notion of love. And it's contagious, to your point. Uh, other people see it and, it, and it makes a difference. I'll even jump in with kind of the type A side here. We've built metrics hmm. around measuring, are you acting like a wingman? I'll give you a couple examples. Hmm. Every member of our team, as a quota, we've got to find three people each year that we work with that as a result of our effort, they see a promotion in their career. Wow. And underneath, I know promotion isn't the only metric that matters, but if you can have that kind of impact on someone else's career, the amount of stories we get about, I sent my daughter to college and didn't have to borrow a dime. Yes, I'm going to get to retire 10 years early because of these bonuses. I just paid off my house. And you were a part of that. These are just such powerful frankly, beyond the income statement, reasons to come to work. Mm -hmm. The other one we have is we say nine for 10. And so for every 10 times we interact with someone, nine times we choose to serve, and one time we get to sell or advance our agenda. Hmm. And we try to measure this pretty maniacally. Are we serving right now, meeting their needs, or are we trying to drive forward our agenda and our needs? Realizing hmm. we are a business, there is time to do that. But if you honor that nine for 10, it's amazing. Whenever you need something, people want to jump through hoops to help you because they've seen what you've done for them. I love that. Something we like to say around here, if it matters, measure it. Uh, so mm -hmm. <laughs> you take it, take it seriously. I was wondering, could you talk a little bit more about what specifically do you do at GE? I sit inside of the GE aviation business. GE today does 75% of the powered flight that occurs in the world. So three out of four airplanes mm. you see take off will be powered by a GE engine. Hmm. We also have about 50% of the world's power we're generating and providing, and about 50% of the MRI machines in the world are GE. There's a few highlights, there's others, but I sit inside the GE aviation business. Mm -hmm. For 100 years, we just celebrated our 100-year anniversary. We have really been masters at physics mm. and things physical, things you could touch. My role is digital. The things, frankly, you can't see or touch. And yet, when we think about our next 100 years, we don't believe the majority of our innovation is going to come through a better fan blade or a smaller engine, although we're working on all those things. It's all the insight we can glean from the data coming from our assets, in mm -hmm. our case, engines, but also airplanes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm responsible for the digital side of GE Aviation. That's fascinating. Uh, you mentioned the future. Let me frame the question this way. There's an economist I, I subscribe to his blog, really thoughtful guy. He's in Britain, and he, he's talked about the difference between a rubber band and plastic. And he will say that, you know, if, if you stretch a rubber band, it, it will 
snap right back into place. But if you stretch plastic, it is forever reconstituted. It will not return to its uh, Mm -hmm. original position. And so what he was inviting in those metaphors was for individuals to think about their institutions and the institutions of the future. And in a post-COVID era, what are those elements of our institutions that are more rubber bandish in nature that we, we should return to or could return to. But what's plastic? What, mm-hmm. what would we be making a mistake if we attempted to return to some, some previous era just because COVID hasn't changed things, but maybe it's accelerated what was already inevitable? And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, related to this, uh, a post-COVID era, but really just a future. How do we think about assets that are digital? How do we think about change in technology and what, what are the implications for education? Let me start with travel, and I'll work my, my way backwards. It's a great question, Kevin. A lot to unpack there. Yeah, sorry. Tra- yeah. No, no, it's great. With travel, I hold on to the firm belief, as is our team, humanity's greatest moments were not and will not be through a Zoom screen or a Teams meeting or a WebEx. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine Kitty Hawk <laughs> taking place through Zoom? Or no. could you imagine the Declaration <laughs> of Independence being signed on DocuSign? <laughs> I love these tools. I love them. And they do make us much more efficient. But humanity said it's best when we're together. Think mm-hmm. about Christmas coming up. Mm-hmm. Imagine just, hey, here's your link to the email from Amazon of the thing you're going to get, but I don't get to spend time with you. Yes. And so we're pretty obsessed right now taking actually some work we've done around blockchain. So most people think about blockchain as cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, but it's actually a real powerful framework for validating something. And so previous to COVID, we were using blockchain to measure our spare parts. Our spare parts are very, very valuable. And as you can imagine, a lot of people want to counterfeit them and inject fake ones into the system. Not only would that hurt the safety of our industry, but frankly, it's going to put an inferior part in our product, which is something we're really, really specific about not letting happen. Mm -hmm. Was COVID approach, we said, let's use that technology to start bringing some certainty to travel. Yes. And so if you think about the last big travel shock we faced was 9-11. Mm-hmm. And in response, we placed TSA at the airports. We introduced pre-check. So there was a screening. You could see, okay, you were validated beforehand. We fortified the cabin door. There's a lot of things you could see that made travel feel safer. With COVID, unfortunately, you can't see it. But nonetheless, with what we do digitally, we believe we can provide the same level of certainty. So a couple of examples. At Albany Airport right now, there are QR codes throughout that airport where we are through blockchain validating when the bathroom was last cleaned, when Hmm. Chick-fil-A was last wiped up, when this terminal was last cleaned, and who did it. And then, frankly, if you think about ways and the way you travel right now, looking at crowdsourcing, all right, there's a police officer here. There's an accident there. I'm going to let people know about this. We're going to provide the same experience for travel so you can know, oh, this is dirty. This hasn't been cleaned. This has been cleaned pretty recently. And even as well as you come to the airport, as we start traveling internationally, knowing you went to LabCorp and were tested for COVID just yesterday and you passed your fine, bringing that level of certainty that the people around you are not carrying this. Mm -hmm. And so this is a lot of work we're doing right now in real time. I'm real excited about it. In fact, next week, I'm going to do a story with Fox Business on Tuesday, I believe. And so following this, I'll I'll make sure I get to the details. Yes, please. Uh, Beyond that... To your bigger question, 100 years of physics and physical, but the reason our business is here in Austin is a group of, of ladies and gentlemen 
and they let me call them this, nerds, <laughs> out of the University of Texas about a decade ago that had deep passion for data and deep passion for aviation. And they said, we believe by taking data off of aircraft and looking at that data, we can provide airlines insights as to how to make travel in the airplane the safest form of transportation by far. Historically, when data was taken off of an airplane, I'm going to date myself a little bit, it looked a lot like a Polaroid picture. Mm -hmm. It was really blurry. You could kind of make stuff out, but really didn't tell you a whole lot. This group out of Austin decided we're going to make a high-definition movie out of every flight. And so if you think about the first time you saw sports or a movie on TV in high def, you could see a dimple in a golf ball. You could see mm -hmm. the grain and the wood on a basketball court. And you never wanted to go back to the old way. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is such a powerful way to take this in. Well, the same thing with aviation. We can now see how each and every flight is flown to high fidelity and not for the purpose of being punitive and saying we're going to fire pilots or anything like that, but to train much like your Fitbit tells you, did you get your 10,000 steps? We're able to show pilots, how did you approach today into Lexington? How did mm. you take off at a CVG? Mm. How are you doing on your, your taxiing? All these sorts of things. The power then, once you have that data and that level of fidelity, you can take it and reuse it. And we do exactly that. A couple key areas. The first, airlines, outside of people and airplanes, their number one expense is gas. They spend a lot of money on fuel. Mm -hmm. And to tie that, they also, as a result, produce a lot of CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. And so what we're able to do is look at much more efficient ways to fly from the way you take off and land even something as simple as after you've landed, you turn one engine off to taxi because you really don't need two engines on to taxi. The combination of this, we do lower the CO2 footprint of an airline, which makes us really proud. We're contributing to sustainability mm -hmm. and not some of the things the airline industry gets knocked for, but we also lower their price of fuel. From there, we can also see how the airplane's operated. And so as a very simple example, if we see that aircraft has had four harsh landings in the last week, it's a clue we ought to probably go look at the landing gear hmm. and the tires. Yeah, And so that's one of many things we now do. On the back end, GE also benefits from this because our business model, much like a lot of industrial businesses, isn't necessarily making money on the engine itself. It's making money on the long-term service agreement to guarantee to our customers, when you turn that engine on, it's going to work yes. and it's going to work great. Yes. And so on the back end, we'll do a concept called power by the hour where we tell a customer, you pay us this much per flight hour, and we will take 100% of the risk. Hmm. By having this data, we can now get way ahead of particular parts that might wear out if, as an example, we see an airplane flying over the desert a lot. Sand is really, really hard on an engine versus an airplane flying over an ocean a lot, which is very easy on an engine. That's fascinating. <laughs> You've talked about the technology, blockchain, the data, its strategic usage. I, I've heard a lot of collaboration. I've heard about measurement, these human values that you mention. If you were approached by a student today who was saying, I want to be successful like you, how do I educate myself? How do I prepare myself for a future, and especially a future that in some ways is widely unknown? How, how might you mm -hmm. answer them? So I'll start with my moment at 19. Make sure you're anchored in the known. Yes. And it's not politicians. It's not even our own knowledge. The known is Christ. Yes. And that has to be 
your, your bedrock. There's no other foundation you can build on that won't let you down. Yes. And so that would be the first and foremost thing I would share. Beyond that, I think taking advantage of your time at Asbury to not only learn and not only stretch yourself, but to gain clarity of thought. When I meet and talk with Asbury students, I see a clarity of thought that I honestly just don't see from a typical state university where you're trying to find yourself. And not that you're not doing that at Asbury or you're just having a good time and going along the motions because it's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. The students at Asbury, I, I just am so impressed because there's a, a passion for much more than a paycheck. There's clarity of thought and Christ is the bedrock. Yeah. So those would be things I'd throw out as the formula. I know you had an, an amazing mentoring experience at Asbury. And moreover, mentoring is something that occurs at GE. Uh, we are actually launching uh, a mentoring program We've been doing this for a while in Asbury, but to, to formalize it and bake it into our architecture in a more deliberate way, which I'm very excited about. But could you, could you take a moment to talk about the importance of mentoring? I'm so thankful you've done this because you're absolutely right. And, and as you know, when you do these well, this truly is a two-way street. It's not a 100%, 0% relationship. And so I think of a few. I mean, Dr. Gray absolutely comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Every Mother's Day, I actually send her a Mother's Day card still because she just has such an impact on my life. I tell my mom all the time, I love you with all my heart, but God gave me a second mother when I went to Asbury. And wow. And again, it wasn't, Andrew, we want to know what your W-2 level is because that's the measure of success. Right. It's, Andrew, we want to know that you are sold out for Christ and the mission field you were called to mm-hmm. is the business world, not the other mission fields we'd more traditionally think about. Mm-hmm. Along the way, I'll give another example. When I moved to California... Some people I knew from Ohio were coming to visit, and they said, hey, we want to play golf at this really, really nice golf course. I said, guys, that's just a really hard golf course to get on. I don't think that's going to be possible. No, it's already taken care of. We've called, his name's Bill Anderson. Mr. Anderson was the CEO of NCR, where I started out of Asbury National Cash Register from 1972 to 1984. He was a prisoner of war for four years. And for me, then he read his book four times. I didn't know he was still alive. And so I asked, I said, as neat as the golf is, guys, I'm excited about that. Could I get his phone number? And so I actually wrote him a letter first and then called him. And to this day, he's 101 years old. We meet every month, and he gives me such unbelievable wisdom. Hmm. I Every every time I call, he's like, Andrew, you don't know what this does to me. And it's just, you know, I'll, I'll use the same analogy. I said, other than my dad, Mr. Henderson, I don't know that there's a man on earth I respect more than you. And that relationship's now been going on for over a decade. So big believer in the power of mentoring. And I love the initiative you've taken. Thank you. And that's an incredible story because I would imagine someone listening to this, for example, a student would say, well, I I get why I should have a mentor when I'm 18, 19, 20. Uh, But here's this person. They're a successful vice president. They're in cutting edge technology they're in their 40s, they have a family, why would they have a mentor? And mm. so could, could you talk a bit about that? And what does lifelong learning look like for you? Why is that so, so important for you? To answer your question, I remember Dr. Ray once saying, if you don't read, you don't get to lead. Hmm. And it does start hmm. with just a frame of mind. There's so much I don't know. And frankly, one of the things that's been more liberating for me, and a lot of people don't have this problem, is by not being the smartest person in the room, knowing You've got to tap into a lot of wisdom if you're ever going to be able to perform 
at the level you're expected on top of knowing you got to go to every meeting and every meeting I go to, I start with Lord, will you show up with this, with, with me in this meeting? Mm-hmm. So if I go by myself, I am hosed. But if you go with me, nothing's going to stand in our way. And I've seen that over and over and over and over. But to your point, just going in with an attitude of I'm the dumbest person here. I'm going to learn how to ask really, really good questions and not have every single answer. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Not only how liberating it is, but honestly, how powerful it is. Yes. And so that's always been, and, and if I think about the next chapter of my life, something the Holy Spirit's put on my heart a lot is doing a lot more research and even building a class on how to ask great questions. Yes. I think we're taught how to interview, how to know our skill, but how many of us are taught and get excellent at drawing others out, which is back to even wingman. A wingman wants to know about others and draw them out, not the opposite. Andrew, this this has been so fantastic. We talk about Matthew 5.16 a lot at Asbury, letting our light so shine before others so that they can see our good works. But ultimately what they're seeing is glory unto the Father. And thank you for, for being a picture, an illustration of what that verse looks like. And thank you for blessing me. I've enjoyed this time and I have no doubt that our listeners will as well. That's today's interview. Also, don't forget that we'd like to hear about unique Christmas traditions you celebrate, including ones that make the holidays more spiritually meaningful, or stories of how God met you in a significant way in a Christmas season at Asbury. Send a note to our email, and I'll try to contact you to set up a short phone interview. Our email address is belong at asbury.edu. 